0: Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland and I am very pleased to be joined today by Joe Spiker, the Executive Director of the Autodesk Foundation. Joe, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I've got some great things that I want to talk with you about um, in the world that Autodesk inhabits and all the philanthropic work that you do. But before we get into that, could you just introduce what is Autodesk?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Autodesk is a software company, and we make software for people who make things. So if you've ever admired a skyscraper, or ridden in a high-performance vehicle, or used a smartphone, or even uh, experienced a uh, visual effects uh, medley in uh, your favorite comic book movie, um, you've experienced what millions of our customers are creating through our design tools. Uh, And so our philanthropy, our our foundation, is created with a mandate to support design and engineering solutions for societal benefit, um, and that is both social impact and environmental sustainability.
0: So are there, um, I am against the idea of design perspective uh, or design thinking as a way of, of tackling some of these problems uh, by necessity, as I understand, it kind of requires us to get outside of, um, our own, what we're used to in design, uh, as a solution to this problem. And I think within the charitable sector in particular, this is challenging that, uh, we've got. Um, a number of people that are um, responding to lack of resources and problems to say, well, we already know how to do this. So we'll just do that the way we've done it before, because that part we've we've got down. What we want is more money, more donors, more clients, more whatever. And and this is the problem we want to attack with. We're perhaps kind of backing up a few steps on really, was that past solution the right design for that? Or was it just something that, you know, people had available at the time? And And I want to, Kind of throw the example out of the the traditional design of um, uh, good old fashioned public schools um, in my community anywhere where um, they they're designed to withstand a nuclear attack. I mean, the the design element is this building can't fall down. Right. Um, nothing about the users that are in the building; just the building cannot fall down. So let's build the most solid thing we can build. Um, but I don't know that that means the best learning environment for people in communities and. If people say, I want to start a new school or a different school, they tend to go to school buildings to do that. Right. Not necessarily, how do we retrofit a school building? How do we do a different building from that? But they go to where they know. And, and I think we have to back that conversation up and say, how do we get away from the idea that that building was ever a good building for being a school in the first place? It was just what people did at the time.
1: Right, right. And I mean, uh, you get to the heart of of a couple of uh, <laughs> of big challenges in terms of um, how do we, as a society, um, move forward and ensure that um, we are creating environments, spaces, and um, products and experiences that that benefit folks? Um, you know, I would say that um, uh, it's interesting. The in in response to that, what comes to mind is 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 our view of philanthropy's role in society, and um, we see philanthropic capital as risk capital for the public sector and sometimes the private sector. And so, uh, you know, the example I always give is homelessness, right? Most funders in the homelessness space traditionally have funded, you know, beds and meals. Um, And uh, that is putting a bandaid on the problem. Um, If you want to actually reduce homelessness, you're likely going to have to fund some riskier tests in uh, you know, let's say PTSD treatment, you know, drug treatment, mental health facilities for folks out on the street. And um, the funding for that is relatively risky um, and you are going to fail in some of those initiatives. And I think overall uh, that philanthropic capital needs to be much more risk tolerant hmm. um, to test out those interventions and um, explore where you get the highest uh, um, impact ROI. Um, and then promote that as a solution. Uh, you know, If the local school board is not going to invest in better design solutions for the newest, latest, greatest schools, that's a great opportunity for a philanthropy to step in and say, we will provide funding for that. Um, and hopefully it will be taken up by the public sector afterwards. One of my favorite examples of that is, um, have you heard of uh, Rebuild by Design in New York? I don't know that one, no. So 2012, Superstorm Sandy uh, hit New York City. Uh, you know, the the general awakening that climate change can and will have impacts within coastal urban cities and, um, and that we need to do something about it. Um, at the time, HUD had emergency, uh, the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, federal government, had funds designated for um, rebuilding after disasters. And... Uh, they decided because this was a relatively new phenomenon, with a, a large Atlantic um, it was hurricane and then superstorm when it hit uh, New York, they needed new solutions. So they actually reached out to the Rockefeller Foundation that did a lot of work on resilience and infrastructure, and said, "How do we do this more innovatively?" And Rockefeller, along with HUD, created um, a competition. Um, that actually manifested to a nonprofit called uh, Rebuild by Design, whereby they uh, invited the world's top design firms to design climate resilient infrastructure for New York City. Um, one of the world's world renowned architects, um, the Bjarke Ingels Group, B-big, big B I G, out of uh, Europe, um, submitted the proposal for the dry line which is actually a, uh, basically like a coastal buffer um, in Lower Manhattan to absorb potential storm surges in the future integrated with a park. And that is currently being built in Lower Manhattan. It's a really innovative use of uh, design to uh, solve a problem that will likely be, uh, become a greater problem in the future. And um, it's, it, it is and should be an example of how Philanthropic capital can be that risk capital for the public sector and public schools. Um, just as a side note, uh, Rockefeller reconstituted that same idea out here in the Bay Area. We're a partner of it. It's called actually um, Resilience by Design. And it is a competition to bring global designers to help the San Francisco Bay Area um, prepare for sea level rise. Mm. And again, some of the biggest uh, design firms, architect architecture firms, in the in the world um big being also a a finalist in this competition is coming up with um climate smart infrastructure to deal with the uh, impending sea rise that will happen in the Bay area in the coming decades and again uh, hopefully this is a lighthouse example of how coastal cities can get out ahead of this problem and focus on the treatment of it beforehand as opposed to the prevention example in the rebuild by design in New York City
0: afterwards. So um, just a clarifying question about Rockefeller's role um, in the New York example, presumably they're um, funding the questions about design but not the actual infrastructure construction. That's still government role or are they actually kicking in towards some of the physical assets that are going to help do this mitigation?
1: So. Uh, I believe that they funded the um, the actual competition that solicited proposals, solicited ideas, and um, and got the attention and efforts of some of the some some of the global heavyweights in the uh, architecture and engineering sphere. Um, you know. Uh one, of, uh one of the examples, actually, which is, um, I think is actually, they're going to start to um, was Scape, um, which is an architecture firm based in New York, um, which uh, a whole other example. But Rockefeller is responsible for bringing these organizations in, and the actual build is done by a, a conglomeration of uh, municipal and federal authorities, I think the majority of which of the funding. For these big infrastructure projects, is coming from the federal government via HUD, okay. um, but Rockefeller funded the, uh, you know, kind of like the ideas, um, and the the uh, the actors that came in to provide these creative ideas.
0: Well, and that's an important role for you know, the, the um, renewed Autodesk Foundation as a relatively new entity in this space to talk about how um, you know, one infrastructure project in San Francisco could wipe out a foundation. I mean, it, these are very, very expensive things to do. So how yes. you spur other people to uh, get to solutions that make more sense but, and then you know, cl- hope that the, uh, the parties involved will say that solution is then worth whatever cost. And of course, I imagine there might be times when it actually costs less to do the more design-centered thinking thing to do, um, but you don't know that until you've gone through a process. Exactly. And that, and
1: that's frequently where we try to play is on the lighthouse examples. How do we inspire others to uh, join in this way of thinking that... Um, how much impact you can get from from an upstream intervention like a uh, an infrastructure climate smart infrastructure or uh, you know a hospital that that uh, is designed for patient outcomes.
0: Right, just any number of examples that I think we're seeing propagate more. I, I mean, I um, have been looking at playgrounds recently in my community, and uh, there, there's not concrete underfoot anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, the the material is got a little give to it. It's not a lot of give, but it's probably enough to prevent a few broken bones. Uh, and nobody in all the time that I raised my children ever said, "Hey, you know, maybe we should be thinking about a different material under where children play." Somebody finally came up with the idea. And And now it's spread pretty rapidly, pretty quickly in my community anyway. So I expect that those lighthouse examples you talk about, once they're out there and people recognize it, um, either doesn't cost any more in the first place or it will reduce costs in things like medical bills and all the rest of it later. So getting them... To embrace that thinking process is such a important part of the work. And it always seems, at least to me anyway, like uh, after the fact, it's like, well, duh. I mean, why didn't we do
1: that earlier? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It's, um, it, it, those are, you know, the, the idea that, it, um, for example, in an, an HIV AIDS hospital, that you would focus on how do we prevent the majority of opportunistic infections seems, uh, you know, seems um, pretty intuitive to me. Um, but in fact, I've been to hospitals in East Africa where the um, the infectious disease ward is right next to the HIV clinic, and you're like, wait a minute, um, this is you know actually leading to poorer outcomes. So it's um, I think that there is that opportunity and. To, to propagate that knowledge sharing and to get folks thinking about this. Um, you know, the, the, the example that you gave uh, around playgrounds is exactly right. A lot of this stuff isn't sexy, um, but it's so useful. Um, and so, uh, you know, how do we get folks paying attention to the, the impact the interventions um, versus the, the, uh, the sexy stuff? Uh, you know, the Rebuild by Design is a brilliant uh, 10 year plus program to fortify Manhattan and New Jersey against future uh, hurricanes um, and yet not many folks have heard about it. Um, and so that I think that's our opportunity is to elevate the discourse around um, where can and should we be placing our bets.
0: Yeah. So let me come down from that very big macro level (laughs) to the the work of the foundation at at a a smaller scale because you have your own technology donation um, component too which um, isn't necessarily of this kind of scale but at least gives people access to tools where they can start thinking a little differently about how they can physically interact with things in the world. Hmm. Yes. Yeah.
1: We actually provide all kinds of support. And um, that's born a little bit of my experience of working with corporate philanthropies previously, Um, being on the other side of the table, uh, working at a a global nonprofit and raising funds. um, My experience was that uh, the corporate philanthropic sector can add so much value by leveraging not only their financial resources, but also their intellectual capital and human capital. Um, uh, the intellectual capital that we can provide is, is our software. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a, a number of uh, programs in which we provide software to uh, any nonprofit around the world that can, um, that, that can and needs our software, um, we'll get it to them. Um, any startup or entrepreneur that is doing anything that is societally beneficial, focused on you know, clean technology or the health sector, we will also uh, get them software, and for our foundation grantees, um, Autodesk products are um, the uh, there. It's a B two B industry, so this is you know um, pretty technical products. Um, these these are enterprise solutions, and so we end up providing a lot of technical support to our grantees to use the newest, latest, greatest tools. Um, and, and so that's kind of under our intellectual capital offering. We also have a very robust um, pro bono program, where we leverage our employees to provide support um, to our grantees globally. Um, and uh, we also provide what we what we call a physical capital. Um, we have a number of innovation spaces around the globe. Um, the uh, principal one is here in San Francisco Bay area. Um, but for those grantees where it is, uh, helpful and applicable, um, we get them access to our fabrication facility here in the Bay area so that they can prototype tools.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it could well be worth the time for, um, charities that have ideas that could be pretty prohibitively expensive to, um, look at that prototyping to even make the trip. Right. I mean, if it's just like, we need two weeks, can we, apply for use uh, just to find out if it's even possible to then go forward because um, that's an expensive proposition for, again, charities in particular. I'm sure, you know, social good organizations of any kind, but uh, do you have folks that try to um, arrange for use of facilities even for short term?
1: Yes. Yeah. So um, we actually, a couple of years ago, right at the outset, brought, so Kickstart um, International Mm -hmm. is a nonprofit um, based in Kenya. They make agricultural pumps to improve productivity and they distribute throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Their um, product design cycle uh, is upwards, was upwards of about 12 months. Um, So from ideation to prototype um, to testing and et cetera, uh, they, it was a long development cycle for their new products. We brought their team over here um, and gave them access to the pier for uh, I think it was roughly three weeks. Um, and they were able to, with the product that with the product ideation that they were currently undergoing, they were able to cut that time down radically. Um, and so it is a fabrication facility. The idea behind our Pier Nine facility is if you can think of it, you can make it. <laughs> and so we look for um, we look for those organizations that are trying to do some rapid prototyping, and um, and create something quickly at a much lower cost than they would do elsewhere. In a lot of cases, folks are paying for um, time on expensive equipment. In some cases, they're sending their engineers to various locations to be able to test. Um, and so, um, you know, for instance, in East Africa, there is a small but growing manufacturing community. And um, a lot of their uh, uh, engineers have to come back to the States to work on things. Um, we are um, funding an organization called Gearbox Um, That is an attempt to recreate something like the peer um, in Kenya so that organizations that are hardware startups can actually do that in situ, um, which is much cheaper and uh, uh, much less effort on their part.
0: We're, we're starting to run a little low on time. I want to ask you a little bit more about that lighthouse function um, and then we'll make sure to wrap with uh, some contact information about some of this work and how people can follow along. But um, as we have ranged this conversation around some of those like big ideas and trying to inspire more folks to hear about them and think about them, um, are you partnering with other philanthropies around this stuff to, uh, on that, that communications end or how do you help leverage each other's work? Because I mean, you just told a great story about Rockefeller, but um, there's there there's so much that could be learned. But boy, it's it's hard to sort the the wheat from the chaff and, and get through the noise. I would think.
1: Yeah, and uh, actually, you know, uh, with uh, with roughly three years of operations under our belt, we're we're the new kid on the block, and yeah. so we're still learning. We're we are, um, if nothing else, a learning organization. Where do we um, identify uh, uh, opportunities that that can be scaled and those that cannot. Um, and so w- what's interesting about um, uh, working with other charitable organizations, there really needs to be, in our experience, an alignment of the stars of uh, the, the mutual shared interest. So we have a couple of philanthropies that we um, that we regularly work with that see a lot of, um, uh, value in investing in this space. The opportunity is to bring more folks into the fold, um, but one of our close, dear partners is the Lemelson Foundation, based out of Portland. Um, and uh, they fund uh, what they call impact inventing. Hmm. on hardware outcomes, but for societal benefit. And so we do a lot of knowledge sharing, co-funding, etc., cetera, with Lemelson, which is a, a, a family philanthropy. And, um, and additionally, we, we co-fund and, and knowledge share with um, another corporate philanthropy called the IKEA Foundation. Um, so that is IKEA's, uh, the IKEA company's philanthropic charitable arm. And uh, they too, given the design focus of the company, see a lot of opportunity in the design field. So um, we just co-funded uh, an initiative with the IKEA Foundation um, called What Design Can Do for Climate Change. Um, it was a global design challenge um, whereby professionals students and and uh, amateurs were asked to submit ideas around uh, designing for climate solutions. Um, and that culminated in a, a gathering in Brazil in November of last year to identify the winners um, and provide additional support and um, and funding to those to the best ideas. So um, yeah, uh, to your question, we are always looking for, you know, uh, we're not going to solve all the world's challenges. Um, there are philanthropies with much deeper pockets than ours. Um, let's look for those leverage points where we can influence the sector overall. Um, and, and the currency is impact. Is Let's demonstrate um, the impact of design and engineering solutions to get folks on board.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the biggest challenges with the charities that I work with, though, is just um, being able to cut through the, the noise filter to hear about these new ideas and opportunities. So if we go back to that example of the, the first time you step on a playground and, and the ground has just the slightest bit of give, you're like, Oh, that's genius! Why, why haven't we been doing that before? It doesn't take long once they've heard it to go, "Oh, right, I, I, should be thinking about that," in the work that we do and how we reach our constituents, how we serve people, how we, you know, interact in that human space. Um, but boy, getting them to think about anything other than, you know, raising tomorrow's operating costs or uh, serving that client that's right in front of them, I think just institutionally is challenging. So as you talk about that that lighthouse function of trying to spread the word and and highlight these ideas that once people hear about them, I think they get excited, but um, boy, cutting through and getting people to give you that mind space is just got to be tough uh, for any organization, let alone a newer one.
1: Um, y- yes, and I and I think that um, in addition to what you mentioned, which is just kind of the, uh, um, you know, I would classify as uh, a little bit of the the, the risk averse thinking in, in certain uh, yeah. uh, philanthropies, um, as well as the siloed nature. So I I used to manage a um, operations for a global nonprofit that uh, worked in health, economic development, women's empowerment, uh, you name it, um, when when we could probably uh, give an example of impact. And at certain charities, we would just get kicked around to the various program officers. they say, well, you should talk to the women's empowerment folks. Uh, (laughs) You should talk to those folks. So, you know, I think that there are some structural challenges within philanthropy that um, we really need to be thinking from a more holistic perspective. And we're starting to see that, I think, to a greater degree. But um, our view of how do we get folks to embrace this as an opportunity is to encourage our uh, grantees and partners to demonstrate their impact. And uh, it's interesting. This is uh, design and engineering tends to be very far upstream, right? So uh, in the initial hospital example that I gave you, Um, uh, Mass Design Group did the design build and then they passed it off to Partners in Health. Partners in Health is the one that's treating the 3000 patients per year, not Mass specifically, right? And so um, that said, you know, funding the design build of this can have, you know, decades of impact through um, some of those uh, outcomes that I mentioned. And um, getting uh, Mass Design to be able to demonstrate the impacts of those design interventions Is I think the catalyst for getting more folks on board. And so uh, I think last year, Mass, last year or or maybe the the end of 16, Mass issued their first impact report that looked at the environmental, um, the health, um, as well as the economic impacts of their work. And so I think we need a lot more of that in the design engineering space to be able to uh, uh, blow this up as an opportunity for funding. Um, but we are committed to it, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm certain that we'll get there.
0: So for people that are interested in following more about the work and just learning more about these um, design principles, design thinking, and, you know, tangentially that human-centered design conversation too, uh, where, where can people continue to learn more or get involved?
1: Well, first, I would encourage um, um, looking at uh, our webpage, Autodesk.org. Um, we put a lot of our um, reason for being and, and our uh, network of partners and grantees on there. Um, and um, in addition, there are some really interesting online resources around this, um, whereby folks can learn a lot more. So, um, Core 77 is a, basically an industry rag for designers. Um, and they publish a lot of, of uh, materials around um, the impacts of design. Uh, I would say that, um, in addition, Stanford Social Innovation Review, SSIR, is starting to publish more and more on these opportunities in this space. Um, And so, um, yeah, I would, uh, you know, anyone that wants to reach out to us, um, we have a public email address on our website, um, and we're always open to collaborators and partners. And I could go on, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> the list is long, but I'll well, keep it short.
0: Well, just throw out the last idea that there is a sign up for a newsletter at autodesk.org. So you can check that out too. And then if you do get yourself into that space where you're um, you know, busy with your own mission and not thinking about it, there'll at least be a little pop reminder in your email every now and again about these ideas and what's happening and keep you engaged uh, that way. So good to know that that's an opportunity for people that want to stay engaged and um, get that occasional reminder of new things that are coming up. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Joe Speicher, Executive Director of Autodesk Foundation, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Likewise, Steve, this has been a great conversation, and I've really enjoyed it.